You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome. You know, for about 200 years or so in human history, from early 1700s to early 1900s, the Western world, that is, we believe that the human race was inevitably progressing, uh, that the world would be made safe and peaceful, specifically as things like reason and science replaced things like faith in God. But then came the 20th century. Then came World War I, the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, World War II, all in the span of 40 years, which moved many skeptical thinkers, atheists, away from the thought that humans in and of themselves could save themselves. This is why William Golding wrote The Lord of the Flies. This is why some of you are forced to read that book, to show that progress was not inevitably forward, inevitably forward and people were not inherently good. And Golding's view, that, that view, dominated till the end of the Cold War, roughly 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, when it seemed like democracy had triumphed for good. And then, then that old view of the inevitable progress of the human race picked back up again. And now, now writers and thinkers for the last 30 years or so have once more promoted the thought that we can save ourselves. Let me give you a quote. An atheistic Jew named Yuval Harari, he wrote a 2017 New York Times bestseller called Homo Deus. That's the title. Homo Deus means humanity is God. Humanity is God. And in it, he claimed, remember 2017, at the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. Most people rarely think about it, but in the last few decades, we have managed to rein in famine, plague, and war. We don't need to pray to any God or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war. And we usually succeed in doing it. Quote Dr. Phil, how's that working for us? How does his analysis look now in light of the last two years? Not so good. He says, who we are is all we have. Who we are is all we need. Therefore, we can prevent disease and war. Listen, he's forgotten. We've forgotten that humans are fundamentally terrible saviors. Humans make terrible saviors. If who we are is all we have and what we are is all we need, if we really are alone, if the universe is a closed system, then we should just go ahead and be honest and acknowledge that there is no such thing as real hope and acknowledge that our lives are fundamentally meaningless. Oh, but in contrast to our modern, lonely and hopeless view is something that uh, one of the most influential people who ever lived wrote. His name is the Apostle Paul. That word apostle generally means a church starter, someone who starts churches. That church starter Paul captured something. We're gonna look at it. In what is likely the oldest piece of literature in what Christians call the New Testament. Paul wrote something in a letter called 1 Corinthians, which is written roughly 20 years after the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And in it, he includes 
what New Testament scholars describe as the earliest statement of Christian faith ever recorded. It's something that he was actually picking up and quoting from that was written much earlier, something that was written at the most no more than 15 years from the event horizon of the Christian faith, which means this. What we're about to look at is going to show us this, that if the Christian faith were like a a tree and you were to cut open the tree and look at those rings, what we're about to read would be at the center. This would be the center cut, the center ring. And this statement of faith from 45 to 48 AD is not only why we're gathered here today, but it's what can give you and us hope. In this passage, again, this earliest piece of Christian literature, Paul repeats for us what's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know then why you can have hope today? It's because, we're going to see, it's because of the gospel. Because of the gospel. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here's, here we go. Here's a statement of faith. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. So why can you have hope this Easter Sunday, 2022? It's because of the gospel of Jesus. What is the gospel? four things we're going to look at from this passage that I hope, if you have not before, you would embrace today. What is the gospel? Four things. Number one, the gospel is Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. Again, Paul writes, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. For what I received, I passed on. That was the most important, that Christ died for our sins. Now, of course, you likely know this. You study world religions at all, but it's common course, for every, every faith system to talk about, sort of point to their founder or, or founders, the Jewish people, for example, point to uh, Moses, to Abraham, Buddhists point to the Buddha, uh, Muslims point to their prophet, Muhammad. Each points, the point is, to the f- teachings of their founder. But here's the difference between all of those in the gospel. In every one of those faiths, a person is always saved by doing or obeying the teaching that the founder gives. If you obey the Ten Commandments, obey the five pillars, walk the eightfold path of enlightenment, you will be accepted or you achieve salvation or you'll achieve nirvana. But it's always you who does the work. The founder just sort of points the way. But by contrast, the gospel, which is a word that means good news, hopeful news, is this. That you aren't saved by obeying a teaching. No, you're saved, Paul puts it like this, by receiving and believing a person. 
a person receiving and believing in good news, which is that Christ did what you could not do. The gospel then stands in such a contrast to the Yuval Hararis, who claim we can save ourselves. And therefore, this is a more realistic and hopeful view. It's realistic because, because unlike Harari's book, it hasn't been thrown out, capsized, undone by simply two years of human history. The gospel actually is more hopeful because it makes sense of the last two years and it shows us we are not alone in the universe. The gospel is something to be received and believed, not achieved, because we don't achieve a person, we receive and believe a person. Number one, the gospel is Jesus. Number two, the gospel is also substitution. Substitution. All right, let me ask you a question. If you would say today, hey, Morgan, man, I am a Christian. I'd say, great. I'll ask you why. What makes you a Christian, Christ follower? Or if you're wondering, what makes a person a Christian? If you're new and somebody invited you today, great. I'll ask you the same. What do you think makes a person a Christian? If you were to say, Morgan, well, it's because I do my best to follow the teaching, great. You know, I made it to church on Easter. <laughs> great. I do my best to read my Bible. Listen, I hope you do all those things, but that won't, doesn't make you a Christian because doing all of that could never solve your biggest problem. You say, what's that? It's this. I'm going to do a little thought experiment. Let's say you've got a friend that you've really, really liked, you've loved maybe for years, but slowly, but surely that friend began to say things about you, say things behind your back about you, lie about you. Maybe it cost you a promotion at work or it separated you from some of your friends. It did a terrible number in your life. And then to top it all off, you found they had been embezzling money from your bank account for years. Now, let's say you found out about all of this and you came to them and you said, hey, we've got a problem here. They're like, yeah, you're right. You know, I'm sort of busted. I feel super bad. Let's start hanging out again. And they said to you, hey, here's how we're going to do it. I'll just come to your house every Sunday morning and we'll sing some songs together and it'll all be cool. You'd be like, "Uh, hang on. We have a deeper problem we have not addressed first. You'd ask them, what are you going to do about what you have done? What are you going to do about the opportunities you stole, the people you cost me, the money you took? And when, not if, but when you asked that, what would you be getting at? Again, the real problem, which is this, that they owe you a very real debt in a relationship that must be paid before things can be made right. A relational and legal debt exists, and for you to go forward, either you have to pay it or they have to pay it, but either way, someone has to pay to make things right. So when Paul the Apostle writes this, Christ died for our sins. He said, listen, y'all, let's be honest. There's something between us and God. We have all sinned and fallen way short of what we owe God. Now, if you've ever read the book or seen the movie, Murder on the Orient Express, Agatha Christie classic, you know it paints a a kind of picture of this that illustrates what Paul is saying. And by the way, I'm about to talk about this, and I am totally going to give away the plot. Therefore, I'll say this to you in case someone's about to complain. This book has been out for almost 90 years. So we've all had our chances. No complaints. Thank you very much. 
Anyway, in the movie, the famous detective, Hercule Poirot, he is tasked with solving this impossible crime. He boards a train with 13 other passengers because this is a murder mystery, of course. One of them dies, leaving 12 suspects. The only problem is, as he gets going into the investigation, all the clues point different directions. All the clues point to different passengers. Each one seems like they could have done it, but of course, each one denies their guilt and points to the other passengers in order to blame them or someone else for the murder. And Perot's confused, of course, because all the clues point all these different directions until he finally figures it out. The clues all point different directions because they were all guilty. There wasn't one murderer. There were 12. They all conspired to put one man to death. None were righteous. Come on, no, not one. Each was guilty just in a different way. And that's what Paul is saying here. There are none righteous, no, not one. It was all of us who killed Jesus of Nazareth. As hard as that is to hear, I want to tell you, it's also hopeful because it means, again, we don't live in a closed system. A living God has come into it from the outside and substituted himself to pay the price. Listen, so many of our insecurities, you saw some of these on the stage a few moments ago, so much of our neuroses or our selfishness that exists, exists because we don't know. We can be completely loved and accepted and forgiven and held by a being of infinite love at every moment. We despair because we feel distant from perfect love. Oh, but Christ, Paul says, died for our sins, putting himself in our place, substituting himself. And I want to tell you, because this is always coming to you, this is not like some bloodthirsty deity, like some Greek myth where the, the gods have to be appeased by human sacrifice. This is not, you know, Agamemnon and the Iliad. Maybe you're forced to read that one too. Sacrifices his daughter, remember that one? To get better winds, to sail back home so he'll be there on time. No, that's all about humans sacrificing humans to control the gods, barter with the gods, make a deal with the gods. No, the gospel is literally the opposite. This is God substituting himself to free us. The gospel, number two, is substitution. Number three, the gospel is resurrection. Resurrection, not a resuscitation, not a revival, not a reincarnation, but a literal, bodily, historical resurrection. Paul says this, that he was raised on a specific day, the third day, again, according to the scriptures. Now, understandably, you might have a hard time with this claim. If so, you should know you're in pretty good company. Because so did everyone else who knew Jesus. They all had a hard time with it. Paul did, Peter did, Jesus' followers did. Which is why, if you caught it a moment ago in the reading, the majority of what Paul writes is all about name-dropping people who had seen Jesus alive post-crucifixion. Look at this. Paul points out, it says, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters simultaneously, most of whom are still alive, some of them not. Then he appeared to James, we're getting your point, Paul. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, what's the word again? He appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Paul's like, I was a little late to the appearance party, but what's he doing? Historian Richard Bauckham calls it this. It says, Paul is creating historical footnotes. 
If you've written an academic paper at, any, at all, at any level, high school, college, you know, post-college, what do you have to do? Come on. You have to cite your sources, do you not? Paul's doing that. And he's saying, if you want to know if Jesus was really raised from the dead, don't just read the thesis I wrote. Go check out my sources. He's citing his sources. Go talk to this person, that people, that group. 500 plus saw Jesus alive at once. Most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. Why? Because again, Jews were as likely to believe a man could be resurrected as you and I are. They believe in a general resurrection at the end of history, but they never believed that one man could be raised at one point in the middle of history. And the Greeks, same thing. Historically speaking, they didn't believe in resurrection either. This was a claim that came out of nowhere and stuck the landing. Why? N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, wrote this very light bedtime reading for you. 800 plus page book about the resurrection of Jesus. And he asks the question, puts it like this. He asks, if you say you disbelieve in the resurrection of Jesus, what other reasonable explanation do you have for the immediate, overnight, and explosive growth of the Christian church? And he summarizes the thought like this. He says, quote, no other explanations have been offered in 2,000 years of sneering skepticism that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb came to be empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and worldviews were transformed. Oh, but put aside any question about the fact of this for a moment, about what it does in your head or to your head. Let me ask you this. What might the resurrection, on the other hand, do for your heart? Why do, why do we, for example, why do we watch any kind of fantasy-based movies or TV shows? Why do we like historical fantasy? Why do we read, you know, romantic fantasy novels? You know who you are. Why do we like science fiction? Why do we keep watching all the Marvel stuff they won't quit making? Why do we watch Star Wars or Harry Potter? It's because you know this. You want to enter into, you want to believe in, be moved by a world where... True love lasts forever, where good triumphs over evil, where time isn't linear, we can connect with loved ones, uh, where our, our desire to meet someone from outside our world is realized, where we meet a hero and a savior, and where death isn't for forever. We read these stories, we buy these stories, we make these stories, we'll spend $50 plus at the concession stand on stale popcorn and a small Coke <laughs> so that we can spend two hours tasting and touching what our hearts long for the most, which the resurrection says, it's all true. It's all true. See, because Jesus Christ is God, was raised from the dead in his body in human history, you can know that true love lasts and death will not have the final say. The gospel, number one, is Jesus. Number two, it's substitution, resurrection. And finally, the gospel, it's personal. It's personal. Paul finishes his message on the gospel on hope like this. He says, verse nine, Listen, I, I'm the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle, a Christian leader, because I, I did some bad stuff. I hurt a lot of folk. I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not without effect. He's letting you know then two things, what the gospel does to us. First of all, the gospel humbles us. Look at Paul's free acknowledgement of his own wickedness and shortcomings and sin. I persecuted, I hurt people. I don't deserve 
anything from God. Humbles us. And second, he says the gospel changes us because of this word, grace. He says the grace of God's come into my life. I don't live now the life I used to live, the lifestyle I used to live. Believing and receiving the gospel has changed me. And I want to tell you, for all of you today, and Easter Sunday, you, you struggle maybe with faith. You struggle with God. You struggle with church. And you're here because a friend or family member invited you. You're tuning in online. So glad you're here. So let me just speak to you for a moment. Not as a pastor, if you can get past that at all. Speak to you just as a person, fellow human. Because as a person, that word, the word grace is the word that makes me want Christianity to be true. Grace is the word. It's the idea that makes me wonder why everyone doesn't at least want, wish Christianity were true if they didn't believe it already. So listen, I can understand why you may not believe it's true. I can understand for sure your reasons for walking away based upon what you were taught based upon what you experienced, based upon where you grew up or the house you grew up in, that's why you don't believe. Or the faith, the version of Christianity that you got where like God just exists to squash people and there were so many rules and if you broke them, you couldn't come back and you broke some so you didn't go back and they didn't want you back. So again, I can understand based on your experience, what you've been taught, where you come from, why you don't believe. But I ask you, why wouldn't you at least want Christianity to be true because of this word, word grace because here's what I what I know I know that this word grace is what we really all long for down deep because even though we may not want to give it we all want to receive it we don't want to give it we don't want to hand it out or extend it when we are wronged but we want it even when we don't deserve it and that counterintuitive truth right there is where we can see all the way to the bottom of the Christian message, which is that while we can't bring ourselves to give away the thing we want the most, God has and God does. Romans 5.10, Paul writes, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. And Paul in 1 Corinthians says, oh, it's, it's, it's even better than that. God didn't just love in us. God loved me. God loved me. God loves me. And today, if you realize that someone like you, like me, could be loved by someone like him, that humbles you, that changes you. See, the gospel is Jesus, substitution. It's resurrection. And because of that, it's personal. It's personal. So with all this in mind, let's do something personal right now. There's an envelope on your seat when you came in. Please don't open it yet. <laughs> made that mistake first service. Don't want to make it again. You may, have, may not have remembered that we gave you an envelope. Would you mind picking up and just holding it for a moment? Because if you'll remember back to those videos and the little scenes that you saw a little while ago, all those people struggling in need, you may recall that you saw or you should have seen that envelope in each scene. In every single scene for one of those people, this identical envelope with this identical message was right there. There was this pain they were experiencing, was there not? Because they were living out a particular message. The message that they were alone. They were alone. But what if? What if they could have received and believed a different message? The message that they weren't alone. And so in the same way today, I don't know where you're coming from. What your year's been like, what your morning today was like. You may be in the same place as those people in your own unique spot asking your same questions or unique questions. 
Either way, there's something very small I'd like to say to you, but very true. This Easter, 2022, after all we've been through over the last two years, in light of what you've heard today, what Jesus has done, would you open this card? Very, just super simple, very true message inside for you. If you're online, should be one coming up right now for you, if not already. Would you mind reading that out loud? What does it say? Yeah, one more time. What does it say? Yeah, would you just, just take a moment. Actually, just you look at it, just straight down at it. If you've seen the movie, you know, um, Inception, you know, there's a, there was a lie at the bottom of this woman's life, this top that kept spinning, that kept a lie alive, out of which she lived and it destroyed her life. And my prayer today is that this message would tumble the top, knock over the lie, and have it be replaced by something better, which you're looking in front of you at. I want to tell you, because of Jesus, you're not alone. Because of the resurrection, you're not alone. Because of the gospel, we're not alone. God really loves us. He really loves us. Today, I want to tell you, secondarily, you're also in a place in a church where you're not alone. There are people here who care about you. Even if you're you're brand new, you say, I don't know anybody, that's okay. It may take some time, a little bit of courage, but you can make a connection here that can also help replace, perhaps, that lie. Would you personalize this message? Just say it, put an I in the front of it. Just say it out loud with me. I am not alone. Yeah. Lord God, I come to you today, this Easter, and I'm praying again. This, This lie would tumble the top knock it over. The lie that's spinning on the inside of us, it says we're alone. And I get it. I get it. We feel this way. Circumstances, life, world, famine, war, plague, distance, anxiety make us feel that. But Jesus, I pray you'd cause us to believe a greater truth. Because of what you've done for us and who you are, we're not alone. And I pray for those of us who have never, ever experienced this before, this truth. We've never allowed our lives to be put in your hands and surrendered to you. That today, we do that. That into perhaps our closed system previously, a shaft of light would break through. And we'd respond in faith saying, Jesus, save me today. Belong to you pray these things now in Jesus name Amen Thanks for listening For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store